Good Wednesday morning, and today we are breaking our regular scheduled kind of podcast to slip something in because Easter is coming up. John is going to read us the first chapter of Confronted by Grace by John Webster. We're getting close to Easter, and I want to begin this, I want to make this talk about how one can approach this period uh, more reflectively than we usually do. And I want to do that by reading a very beautiful homily by John Webster. Um, the Lie of the Self-Sufficient, it's called. And the homily is based on Matthew 21, uh, 33 to 39, which is the story of the, uh, the, the vineyard that was planted by the owner, and then he went away and rented it out to tenant farmers, who when he thought there ought to be grapes, he sent his servants and they killed them. Even sent his son and they killed him. I mean, it's a pretty transparent parable. Uh, and the Pharisees got the message quite clearly uh, from the reading of the scriptures. But here's what John Webster does with this in uh, just about 15 minutes. So I hope you can sit and listen for 15 minutes. Um, I find what he does with this passage absolutely stunningly good for me. One way of coming to understand the events of Holy Week is to think of them as the triumph of falsehood. Beginning on Palm Sunday with the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and over the next few days moving inexorably to its climax, the drama of the Passion unfolds as one thing, as a consistent, willful, institutionally orchestrated rejection of truth, the acting out of a lie. From my perspective, this is our world, isn't it, where our politicians lie so much they can't even tell the difference and they have no idea of any real repentance. John Webster goes on, What unites the cast of characters which are assembling before us as we read through the narratives of the Passion of Christ is this. Altogether, religious leaders, the disciples, uh, the governing authorities in the person of Pilate and the chorus of minor players in their various ways conspire to deny the truth. They all choose darkness rather than light. They all fail to acknowledge what above all else they ought to acknowledge, that in the man Jesus they are faced with the presence of God himself. And the events in which they are caught up, the putting to death of the Son of God, are as a whole and in all their detail the embodiment of the great lie, the ultimate untruth. Why do we tell lies? We lie to evade reality. We lie because the truth is too painful or too shameful or because truth is simply inconvenient and has to be suppressed before it disturbs us. We invent lies because for whatever reason we want to invent reality. And the false reality which we invent, the world we make up by our lying, has one great advantage for us. It makes no claims on us. It demands nothing. It doesn't shape us in the way that truth shapes us. It faces us with no obligations. It has no hard resistance resistant surfaces which we can't get through. A lie is a made-up reality and so never, upset, never unsettling, never criticizes, never resists, never overthrows. It's the world not as it is but as we wish it to be, a world organized around us and our desires, the perfect environment in which we can be left at peace to be ourselves and to follow our own good or evil purposes. Lies are a desperately destructive force in human life. 
When they take the form of private fantasy, they rob us of our ability to deal truthfully with the outside world. But when lies go public, when an entire social group replaces reality with untruth, then the consequences are deadly. Sometimes, indeed, they can be literally deadly. Lies can kill. Lies work only when they remain unexposed. Once truth is allowed out, once reality is let in, then the lie just vanishes. The whole world of falsehood just crashes to the ground. And if the lie is to be maintained intact, then anything that speaks the truth has to be got rid of. Totalitarian societies, dishonest businesses, abusive human relationships, they all depend on the exclusion of truth and truth speakers, making sure that what really is the case isn't allowed to come to light. Lies only work when they aren't shown up for what they are, and that's why lies always breed more lies, as we try to protect the world we've invented from being exposed. At the heart of the story of the Passion, therefore, is the confrontation of truth and falsehood. Why does Christ die? Why is he suppressed, cast out, and finally silenced by death? Because he speaks the truth. He dies because in him there is spoken the truth of the human condition. He is the truth. In his person as the one who he is, as the one who does, not, who does what he does and says what he says, he announces the truth of the world and thereby exposes its untruth. He shows up human falsehood in all its depravity, and he does so not as a relatively untruthful human person, nor even as a prophet inspired to declare what is hidden, but as God himself. His words, his declaration of the truth, are God's declaration. He is therefore truth in all its finality, truth unadorned, truth which interrupts and casts down every human lie, every obstacle to seeing reality as it is. In him is a complete judgment, an unambiguous showing of the truth from which we may not hide. It's this which is at the core of the conflict between Jesus and Israel. And it's for this that he is sent to his death. What is the final terror which he evokes in those who hear him? Simply this, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Now, it is of this deadly struggle between truth and lies that we hear in Jesus' parable of the wicked husbandman, taking up a familiar picture from Isaiah, the chosen people as a vineyard planted by God. The parable condenses into a single story the whole drama of the conflict which is unfolding before us in the last days of Jesus. This situa- the situation we are in, Jesus tells his contemporaries, is this. The people of God, God's chosen ones, are like a well-set-up tenant farm run by rogues who simply don't want to pay the rent. Indeed, not only do they refuse to pay, they even want to obliterate the whole idea that they are tenants and that they are responsible to the farm's owners. They want to go about their business as if there were no owner. And so when the owner sends his representatives, and even when his son, they act out the great lie they have built around themselves. They kill to get rid of any trace of the owner's demands and so try to make reality out of falsehood that this is their farm, which is owed to no one. Such, Jesus says, is Israel's situation. Such is what's happening now in the life of the people of God. Truth, reality, the truth and reality of our own situation as people of God are being overturned and replaced by a lie. There are two things we must consider here if we are to let the story do its work amongst us. We must 
first ask about the nature of the final act of rebellion against God, and we must ask second about the identity of those who rebel in this way. What is this act of refusal of God? At its heart, it's a refusal to consent to the reality of their situation as those who owe the rebellion, uh, owe in rebelling against the covenant of grace. They are merely doing what we do. Israel here is humanity itself in its hatred of God. The story of the Passion is thus not just the central episode of Jewish history, but of all human history. Here is acted out our rejection of God, our covenant-breaking, our falsehood. And what therefore is condemned is us. These, of course, are hard thoughts. There is an almost unrelieved bleakness to the parable which, if we really hear it, ought to shake us. But over this passage, and indeed over the whole dark story of the Passion, there stands one great nevertheless, one great word of the gospel which pronounces that, despite everything, despite the worst that human wickedness can do, God's covenant with humanity is undefeated. That nevertheless is declared to us in Psalm 80, which is one more variation of the theme of Israel as a vineyard. You brought you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, but it was smashed, looted, broken down. What hope is to be found? It is to be found in the prayer at the end of the psalm. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine on us, that we may be saved. That is the only hope. That the face of God may shine upon us, that God may be present, so present with, to us with the truth that our falsehood is put away that God may restore by interposing himself between us and our destruction, that God will intercept our death-dealing ways and give us light. It's the conviction of the Christian faith that prayer has already been, that, that prayer has already been answered, finally, fully, and with absolute sufficiency in the events of Good Friday and Easter Day. It's the conviction of Christian faith that Israel was not allowed to destroy itself or to reject its God, it's the conviction of the Christian faith that human falsehood has been set aside once and for all, that God's covenant stands, that we stand within this covenant by mercy alone. That is why we may approach Holy Week with this prayer. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. In six pages, John Webster preaches uh, a, a sermon that might take several, several Sundays for the average pastor. Uh, you can read it again and again, as I have done. So uh, get your own copy, John Webster, Confronted by Grace, and read, read it through. It's ideal for the period before Easter, because it's rooted in that in many ways. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. And if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to give it a like, subscribe, and leave us a review. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.